Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, I would encourage you to go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's show on what is a dark and cloudy autumn afternoon here in the capital is Cara Cinnamon. Cara is the CEO of Kulisa, an award-winning charity that recognises and addresses the social and emotional needs of the most vulnerable young people here in the UK. Um, Cara, a very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for joining us on the programme. Pleasure, great to be here. It's a real pleasure welcoming you onto the airwaves alongside me as well. Um, normally at this point in the show, we dive straight into the subject of leadership and really bring that into direct focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I think it's appropriate we approach the subject from that point of view, because it has proven to be such a significant challenge, hasn't it, for leaders within all walks of life, this pandemic. But for yourself, heading up a charitable organisation like yours, to what extent has all of this affected things for you? Yeah, well, it's been a very, um, a very challenging six months, as I'm sure it has for many, uh, you know, organisations and leaders in a similar position to ourselves. Um, you know, working with young people who've experienced trauma and adversity is never an easy task. Um, and I think given this, the kind of surge in demand that we've been seeing over the last six months, it has been very difficult to keep up with demand is the first thing that I would say. Um, we traditionally deliver our, our programs through schools and through prisons. So we work with young people who are demonstrating challenging behaviours, um, which are very often linked to traumatic events that they've been experiencing um, in earlier childhood. And of course, the pandemic for many of these young people is exacerbating um, the challenges that they, they've been experiencing, um, whether at home or in other areas of their lives. And um, the surge in demand has really been uh, very overwhelming. We've had around 10 to 15 times more um, referrals being sent through to us, which has been very difficult. I think we've been you know, navigating that alongside a um, very challenging delivery context. Of course, you know, schools and prisons very, very vulnerable to the lockdowns, um, both regional and national lockdowns. Um, schools in some ways have been easier for us to maintain delivery, of course, because um, the majority of those have been kept open throughout uh, lockdown periods. But even when we are delivering with young people in these environments, it's very challenging. Um, you know, we have to maintain social distancing at the moment, having to be very careful around um, the proximity um, that we have with staff and young people. Mm. And, you know, Kalisa's model is, is very much based on um, building trust and rapport with the young people that, that we support and that can be even harder um you know once you're wearing visors and masks and 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 you know be, simply being in, in an environment where people are feeling very anxious already and their their fears and anxieties are heightened by what's happening around them so mm. in a very challenging delivery context very difficult to maintain um you know supply with demand and then equally, you know, from, from a team perspective, we've um, been working remotely since March. We actually gave notice in our office very early days um, into the pandemic because we really saw that that would be mm. the way things were moving. Um, and then, of course, the financial implication has also been significant. Um, exactly at the time where demand has surged, we've also had 
uh, various kind of negative effects on our on our income, unfortunately. So it has been a perfect storm in many ways. Certainly seems the uh, the case as well, and um, it's very important that you raise the uh, the mental health and well being concerns as well, because you're working with a very vulnerable set of people at the uh, the best of times, and when you're having to work in that sort of face to face capacity, and there's PPE um, involved as well, sometimes it's easy to forget that that can be incredibly unsettling for somebody who is vulnerable and thrives on that sort of face to face contact of being able to actually see the people that they're dealing with, and it puts them at ease, obviously looking at somebody's face. So it's a huge problem that that you've um, highlighted there certainly so and um, with regards to sort of safeguarding the mental health and well-being of those that you work with as a charity and also the staff that you um, have on board as well just how has it been over the last few months because the issue has been so heavily amplified by all of this absolutely i mean you know as i said earlier our our program won't work if, if the young people don't feel really safe with our practitioners, that's, that's the number one priority. They need to feel they're in a safe place and they really trust um, our delivery team. So being able to maintain those relationships and build new relationships during this time has been very difficult. Um, and of course, you know, one of the key things we've had to do where we haven't been able to maintain face-to-face delivery is to move to online delivery platforms. So we have, you know, within the space of eight weeks of, of lockdown happening, developed entirely new digital programs, which of course needed extensive development in terms of safeguarding, uh, risk assessment, making sure that we were um, doing everything we possibly could to safeguard young people online. Um, and that was, you know, brand new to all of us. You know, we'd never, we'd, we'd never deliver digital programs. So it wasn't just that the, the concept of taking something offline, online, that was difficult. It was then mm. all of the repercussions of that. How do you you know, protect and safeguard young people during that process. Um, and equally, how then do you train your staff? I mean, our staff team are, you know, art and drama therapists. Um, they're highly qualified, highly skilled and very expert in their work. But again, they had never been asked to deliver in such a, um, you know, in such a new way before. So supporting them, upskilling them and, and, and developing their confidence to, to perform well online was also a big challenge. Um so it, it's been a huge period of change for all of us. And I think, you know, not just mm. the young people um, and, and managing people through that change curve and, and thinking about all of the personal and professional challenges that we're all dealing with through through this lockdown period has been has been very, very hard. And it's a challenge as well, isn't it? Sort of leading from a distance and mobilising a group of people that are working remotely, because sometimes that sort of face-to-face contact as a team as well as something that you do need just to brainstorm and collaborate on certain ideas. And given, of course, that you have given notice on your office space, um, is that a challenge that you're also looking forward to sort of dealing with over the course of the uh, the next few months as well? Absolutely. I mean, Kalisa had some experience of, of remote working because although we're a very small organisation, we have... Um, got teams based in London and up in the northwest in Manchester and Bolton. So we had had some experience of what it was like to manage teams remotely. But of course, now that we are 100% um, remote as an organization, of course, that brings with it a whole set of new challenges. Um, but I think the, the key thing during this that I think, you know, that my, my leadership style has had to adapt. The main thing that I've had to do is to take a far more directive approach um, and you know, far, be far less consultative perhaps than I perhaps would be in a normal situation. I think when this type of crisis occurs, I think people within the team are experiencing, you know, lots of uncertainty. And I think the number one thing that, that my team needed from me was clarity, decisiveness, and, you know, a vision. 
and an idea of, of the direction that we were heading in. And um, and I think, you know, be, being assertive and being able to make those quick decisions has, has meant that they have felt safe um, and they have felt um, secure in, in what's happening. And albeit, you know, during that process, perhaps there were many decisions that, that weren't that weren't positive news to them and that they didn't feel perhaps very comfortable with, but equally they understood the rationale for that and they were very kind of willing and trusting in me and the decisions that I was making um, on behalf of the organization. Um, but yeah, I think you know, that that's hard to do at the best of times. You know, when you're having these difficult conversations with mm-hmm. colleagues, um, that can be difficult to do that face-to-face, let alone doing it through a Zoom screen or through a telephone call. Um, so I think really there we've learned about the importance of trust amongst the team we've learned about the importance of maintaining um good communication in multiple forms and making sure that people felt involved and connected to everything that we were doing and um, whilst we were having to make very fast decisions um along the way yes certainly when it comes to leadership those are all incredibly important facets and albeit you've described the experience of the last few months as pretty much a perfect storm already but looking back over this experience of crisis management if we call it that is there anything you can say that you can maybe take as a positive perhaps that you've maybe learned from this whole experience yeah absolutely and i think you know as a as a small organization i suppose we are very able to adapt quickly and um, you know to use this opportunity to to be creative um, and to think about how we can use this as a as a an opportunity to really put a spotlight on some of the the things that we've been trying to tackle um, for you know over a decade now. So I think as an organisation that specialises in in developing the well-being of the most vulnerable groups of young people in the country, we really welcome the new focus actually on on how trauma and a traumatic event such as a global pandemic can have really adverse um you know really adverse impacts and negative consequences on young people's lives and so we're we're kind of trying to think about this as an opportunity to to engage in that in that discourse and to Mm. help people understand that actually for lots of young people this has actually just heightened their risk level and these are you know young people who are already very vulnerable and this has kind of tipped them over the edge um into needing really kind of crisis and emergency support from organizations like ours so Mm. there's one opportunity there in terms of it being a very important topic that's understood better um so we we really welcome that it's also been an opportunity as i say for us to be creative so our digital programs we think will be with us um for the long term Mm. now um we don't we don't think we'll we'll move entirely online and we don't you know we don't think that that's a good replacement or a sort of a sufficient replacement for our face-to-face delivery but certainly a blended model will be something that we were we will start to um work towards now and in the year to come um and i think equally you know there is a strength in our team now a resilience in our team um that perhaps wasn't there before the the pandemic i think people feel that they've really kind of overcome something huge together they feel that there's a real strength and sense of shared purpose um, and that's really wonderful to see that. I think everyone has learned something about themselves and about each other's roles during the six months. And I think that will serve us very well in the future as well. Um, and, and I think finally, at kind of sector level, I think there's obviously this, this kind of renewed focus and discussion and debate in the public amongst, um, amongst the public around the role of charities mm. and the role of local leaders. You know, and I would class Kalisa as a, a local grassroots charity and we um we we feel that we have stepped up 
during this period of crisis. And we have very much been there to support the most marginalized groups of young people. And there are thousands of organizations like us out there doing wonderful work. And it's, it, it's encouraging to kind of see that being recognized um, in, a, in a way that perhaps hasn't been so in the past. I think that's very, very right. Um, it is so inspiring to see organisations such as yours taking a real lead in uh, their communities. And I think that is something that is going to be needed in the months um, and years to come as well, because we're already seeing so many instances where local communities are having to fall back on charitable organisations and the services that mm. they are providing during this time. And just thinking yeah. about the sort of very tricky winter period that we do have uh, coming up, if we could look beyond then, Cara, and sort of look at where ideally you'd like Kalisa to be in the next 12 months, what is it that you're really envisioning for the next year as we try to negotiate that period? And what are you really hoping to have achieved as an organisation by this time next year? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I mean, I think, you know, as I said just now, I think we very much want to focus on our uh, blended delivery models. So thinking about how digital has a, a permanent role to play in our, in our programme. So whether that be an extension of our existing programme or just an additional supplementary way that young people can stay in contact with us, we'd, we'd like to explore that further. Um, I think another thing that we'll be looking at is new partnerships. You know, whilst we traditionally work with schools and prisons, um, a, a big part of the growth and the expansion of the organisation in the last six months has, have come from new types of partnerships. So, you know, professionals typically who um, are really struggling to, to know how to deal, um, how, to, how best to support the young people in their care. So whether that be social workers, police officers, teachers, anyone that is directly supporting young people, they're really looking and seeking guidance and advice. And I think that for us is a really interesting um, area that we can add real value and we can share our expertise. So I'd like to see us building new types of partnerships in that area. Um, we absolutely now need to rebuild our financial um, model. I think, you know, we had previously um, diversified our income streams very successfully and we were um, relying on a certain amount of our income from sales from prisons. Now, of course, because of what's happening, um, we haven't been able to secure that income because uh, of the prison, prison closures and we haven't been able to deliver our services. So we need to rethink that now. You know, if that is the way of the future and, and we cannot rely on sales um, in the coming 12 months, what other income can we start to attract in order to replace that? Um, and I think finally... You know, for us, I'd like to see Kalisa play an important role now in this debate and discussion amongst policymakers and amongst, um, you know, national leaders within within the UK, thinking about how best to support young people. You know, what do they really need? And for us at Kalisa, we really believe that they need support in developing their social and emotional well-being. We need to see a recognition now that young people are deeply affected by what's happening mm. and they need specialist support. You know, I think across the country, every employer in the country is thinking about employee wellbeing schemes. And we would say that, that young people deserve the same acknowledgement, if not more. Um, so, yes, I'd like to see Kalisa playing an important part of that discussion and using our evidence base um, to, to, to influence decisions that are being made uh, for all young people across the country. Mm. 
certainly seems to be a time of challenges ahead on the financial side of things, but also plenty to be excited about as you look to forge those new partnerships and really have an impact in those new areas. And I really do hope, Cara, that it does come to, uh, to fruition over the next few months. And I think it would be wonderful, in fact, to catch up in the future and have you back on the programme at some point in the next year, just to see how some of those hopes are being really borne out. Yeah, I would. I would very, really welcome that. Um, as I, as I say, it's been a, a very challenging six months, but we've actually achieved an awful lot more um, and surprised ourselves. I think in, in terms of what we've been able to achieve. So, I, I look forward to seeing what the future holds for us. Yes, certainly. And I really hope there'll be some positive news to share by that point in time as well, when we hopefully we do get an opportunity to uh, speak and catch up. Um, until then, Cara, please do take care and stay safe with everything that's still going on. And that extends to everybody associated with Kalisa as well, because it is going to be a difficult time ahead. And let's just keep our fingers crossed that we won't be stuck in the rut for too much longer. Brilliant. Thank you very much. And same to you. I'd also like to extend that to to all of the listeners tuning into today's podcast as well. Please do continue to stay well and be considerate of others because it does make such a key difference in saving lives at this most trying time. It was a pleasure for me to welcome Cara Cinnamon, CEO of Kalisa, onto today's programme. Next up on the show today, we'll be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and incumbent Leaders' Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett. Now, Lord Blunkett enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth. He held a number of senior positions in the cabinet of Prime Minister Tony Blair during his premiership and served as the MP for the Sheffield Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. His political exploits saw him elevated to Parliament's upper house back in August 2015 and I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew welcomed the opportunity to catch up with him. All of that will of course be coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? 
Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cyber security side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain, and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this, 
things will revert. Mm-hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, We may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different hi- interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required Uh, Those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself 
is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. 
I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticise the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- sh- um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, 
but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently, let's try and get back, perhaps 
you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the 
Equality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm-hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank you for coming on the the program. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening 
in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.